From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Most of Colorado is experiencing a drought right now. The majority of our native range has never greened up uh, all summer. It looks just like it did in the middle of winter. So you walk across it and you hear the crunch of dry grass. You see uh, dust clouds from your steps. We'll get perspective on what it means and why some farmers are actually glad it's so dry. Then an update on efforts to save jobs during the pandemic. The numbers don't always add up. Plus, what does it mean to be a man of color in America today? A new exhibit challenges societal norms. And a graphic novel takes on the taboo surrounding periods. I hope that when people read it, boys and girls, they realize that there's not just one way to menstruate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Nearly the entire state... 95% is in a drought right now, and nearly half of Coloradans live in the affected areas. The U.S. Drought Monitor shows that only the northwest area from Greeley to Craig has been spared. Joining us on the line today to expand on what this means to Colorado is Mike Haricotta, a Rocky Ford cantaloupe farmer. We'll also hear from Bruce Fickenshire in the parched southeast part of the state. And let's start with Becky Mitchell, director of the Colorado Water Conservancy Board. Welcome to the show, Becky. Thank you. Becky, it's your job to worry when the state becomes parched. So are you worried? You're right. I do worry about our state's access to water, especially around this time of year when temperatures rise and the drought deepens. And with the changing climate, it's clear that significant drought years are becoming more and more frequent. This is particularly um, existent in the southern and eastern regions of the state. Um, So, however, this increased drought period is not unexpected. That's why the state pulled together a team of water experts, the drought task force, and supporting teams to find solutions to support communities that are hit hard by these current conditions and compounding drought years. So give us some perspective. When did you see this drought start creeping into Colorado? Well, you know, last fall we had a very dry fall and then again a dry spring. So folks often look at our our um, winter weather and say we did get to enjoy an average snowpack year. But with those exceptionally dry soils, um, at, those translated into a below average spring runoff and almost all major basins, all the river basins. And so this combined with above average spring temperatures brought parts of Colorado into what we classify as extreme drought as early as May 5th. So you have to have this longer term perspective than just what happened last season if you're going to actually look at what's going to happen in this season as far as drought goes. You mentioned climate change. Tell us about how that's a consideration. Are we starting to see more extremes? Um, We do see rise in temperature and even a degree or two has a heavy effect on um, the water availability. So when we plan at the state, we're planning um, with that in mind. So we, we look at our long-range planning. We're planning with the impacts of climate change. And on June 22nd, Governor Polis activated the Drought Mitigation and Response Plan. 
What does that mean? That drought mitigation and response plan is really used as our state's official guide for addressing drought throughout the year. So as 33% of our state entered into an extreme drought, phase two of that plan was activated, and that directs the official formation of the drought task force, as well as the agricultural impacts task force. These groups connect with those local communities and producers and governments to find um, necessary resources, including financial support, to address some of the impacts that are caused by drought. And then dreaded but often necessary water restrictions. Will we be seeing those going into August? Well, that's one thing I don't get to take the blame for, but um, it's it's really important to recognize that municipal water providers have described above average water demands in both April and May. And but at the same time, they reported average reservoir levels. So while we hope not, it's possible that we see water restrictions Um, as municipalities plan for recurrent drought years. that's that's really where those drought restrictions come in. So uh, they come from a local level water provider um, point, and it's up to each community. Now, I have to remember that last year we were celebrating that we were virtually drought free. I do know that 2018 was bad, and now we're back to it again. What kind of impact is it having to have multiple years of drought, even with that good year in between? I understand that there are some places that haven't been able to produce crops for several years. Um, Yeah, of course, there's heightened levels of concerns about our state's economy during and after a drought. Um, Drought affects agriculture, outdoor recreation and tourism. And some of the economies hit first and those are the economies that are hit first and hardest. We're also seeing more frequent um, and severe wildfires that strains our state's emergency response capacity and funding. Um, But also it's important to remember those low stream flows and hotter water temperatures stress our aquatic species and stressed or even dormant vegetation impacts our wildlife health. And so one of Colorado's greatest attributes are our outdoor spaces and natural resources economies. So drought affects everyone. So let's talk to one, or we'll hear from one of the folks in agriculture who's affected. Bruce Fickenshire oversees the southeast part of Colorado for the CSU extension where the drought seems to hit the hardest. We asked him to describe what the landscape looks like on the plains of East Pueblo. The majority of our native range has never greened up uh, all summer. It looks just like it did in the middle of winter. So you walk across it and you hear the crunch of dry grass. You see uh, dust clouds from your steps. Um, even when it does rain, it, uh, it's like pouring water in a clay bowl. There's just not much of a chance for the grasses to grow. Figginshire told us the drought plus COVID-19 means extra income for small businesses has been cut off in small towns. With the COVID deal, you know, we had a lot of producers who depended on some outside income for to pay some, some living expenses, uh, jobs in town and whatnot, and a lot of those jobs were closed down, so they didn't have that income. Plus, they didn't have income from any crops or livestock because uh, the prices dropped for all those commodities. And now we also have this drought on top of it where producers are having to sell livestock off, which is their main source of income. 2020 is a tough year for, for anybody down here in agriculture. These are very hard times for southeastern Colorado sorghum and wheat farmers, but there are those who are actually thankful for these hot, dry days. Mike Haricotta is a fourth-generation cantaloupe grower. Mike, welcome to the program. 
Hello, how are you? Doing well, thank you. How has the drought been for the 2020 crop in Rocky Ford? We uh, we don't want extreme drought, but we do not mind it, the weather being dry. Um, we've actually been extremely fortunate here that uh, we have caught some very timely rains upstream that have uh, kept our canal in water so we can keep irrigating. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't rain here, it doesn't hail. And uh, hail is one of our main problems. I'm out here in the field right now looking at uh, probably some 20 to 30 percent heavy hail damage that happened a month or a month and a half ago and is going to affect our yields on the, the cantle field. But, uh, um, you know, if, if uh, we can keep it a little on the drier side and let everybody else upstream get the rain, we're pretty, we're perfectly happy. And is too much rain actually bad for cantaloupe? Yeah, it'll affect the flavor. It'll cause, uh, you know, more wheat pressure um, and a lot of uh, decay will happen to the cantaloupe itself. It'll actually pull in more water than sugar and it'll be a watered down version of a cantaloupe and uh, they actually they, they break down quicker and uh, um, are just the quality isn't there. And I've got to ask, when can you start picking and more importantly, eating these cantaloupe? We are, I'm actually, you know, like I said, I'm in the field. I found a couple out here, and then there's a few people around, a couple people around Rocky Ford uh, picking. So we're thinking in the next week, they should, we should be able to start shipping some out to the, uh, to the grocery stores uh, throughout Colorado. Oh, wow. So we could start seeing these in stores soon. You said you're in your yeah. field. <laughs> Tell us what it looks like right now. Bring us there. What does it look like? What does it smell okay. like? It, you know, it's, you can, it, they're barely starting to turn ripe, so there's a hint of sweet in the air, and it's, it's green. Like I said, we have caught some very fortunate rains here, and, um, you know, the, the, the weeds are coming up, and uh, <laughs> we don't like that, but it's, it's very green, and the blooming, the blooms are yellow and brilliant, and uh, you can hear the bees buzzing around everywhere. Now, Becky, you've said that the drought coupled with the pandemic is a one-two punch to the state. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, Colorado's really feeling the stress of both the drought and COVID-19. We've obviously had um, vast disruptions in our economy, our workforce, and all of Coloradans' lives. Um, a drought on top of that just provides additional stress. It makes things harder on our farmers and our ranchers. And we've had a greatly reduced outdoor recreation season. And many local economies, particularly tourist-based ones, are seeing far fewer out-of-state visitors. Additionally, with social distancing and closures of many normal daily activities, folks are looking to the great outdoors of Colorado for summer activities and that release that we need more than ever. So lower river levels means higher rock dangers for rafters and also increased temperatures um, put stress on those fish and um, wildlife. So it's great that people are enjoying all that what our state has to offer, but it's important that Coloradans and any visitors that we do have recreate responsibly and recognize that drought conditions are hard on our forests, rivers, and wildlife too. Is there any relief to the drought coming? Um, well, we always can look forward to winter and and see what that brings us. Becky, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. And Mike, thank you for taking us into your field. You're welcome. Becky Mitchell with the Colorado Water Conservancy and cantaloupe farmer Mike Herakata. We also heard from Bruce Fickenshire, Southeast Area Director of Extension for Colorado State University. When we come back, tracking jobs that have been saved during the pandemic. It's not as straightforward as the numbers might suggest. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give right now, your essential donation means CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And it means that CPR Classical and Indy 1023 can continue to fill your home with music. Preserve and protect all that you get from Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Has the federal payroll protection program really saved 900,000 jobs in Colorado during the pandemic? CPR's business reporter Sarah Mulholland has been digging further into the data. She's back with us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Avery. The Payroll Protection Program, or PPP, was rolled out in March to help businesses with 500 or fewer employees. Remind us how much money has been allocated. So according to the U.S. Department of the Treasury, about $700 billion in taxpayer funds has been earmarked for small businesses during the pandemic. Um, And those loans supported more than 51 million jobs across the U.S. Uh, In Colorado, an estimated 900,000 jobs were supported. That's according to the Small Business Administration's district office. But the 900,000 job figure is up for some interpretation. Why is the data not completely grounded? So the numbers the government put out are based on how many employees a business reported having when they applied for the loan. So I spoke with Tom Terry. He's the chief credit officer of UMB Bank. His bank provided about 5,200 PPP loans, um, and about 1,000 of them were in Colorado. So he told me that accurate information on how many jobs were ultimately saved won't be available until applications for loan forgiveness um, start being processed. Okay, so explain loan forgiveness and how that comes into play. So companies can avoid paying back their loans if at least 60% of the cash is used for payroll. Um, So to get loan forgiveness, companies will be required to document how many employees they had when they received the loan and how many of those jobs still exist. So Tom Terry with UMB Bank said it's simply too early to say how many jobs have been impacted. Um, And that leads to a flawed approach to interpreting the data. The Small Business Administration runs the program, and they haven't even started accepting applications for loan forgiveness. So time will tell. So how did we end up with an estimated 900,000 jobs saved in Colorado at this point? The Colorado SBA told me in an emailed statement, the data is from, quote, summary information captured from PPP applications as provided by clients and entered by lenders. Um, So I want to point out, though, that there are a lot of questions about the overall reliability of the data. For example, nearly 1,400 businesses in Colorado didn't report any jobs in connection to their loans in the data spreadsheet. Um, That could be due to a clerical error or that companies just weren't required to fill out all the fields on the application form. You've been reaching out to businesses about these PPP loans. What are they telling you? Well, ARB Midstream is a Denver-based energy company, and the data show that it got a loan for between $2 million and $5 million, but that money supports zero jobs. So Rogan McGillis is the CFO for ARB, and he emailed me a statement saying ARB currently employs more than 100 people in three states, and the loan money did go to payroll-related costs. So in this case, the official estimates of the number of jobs saved could be undercounted, but overall, estimates of how many jobs saved will likely be inflated because of the poor quality of the data. Um, And that's according to Hunter Raley. Hunter is Colorado director of the Small Business Majority, an advocacy group for small businesses. As far as we can tell, 
maybe not all of it, but a good portion of that money, frankly, went to people who didn't need it, weren't impacted, um, and really weren't employing, uh, in large measure, the segments of the population that were going to be most at risk to transmitting the virus. You've also found that it might be difficult to count jobs in the restaurant and hospitality industry? So restaurants are still dealing with a lot of disruption and closures right now. They can't open at full capacity. I talked with Josh Wolken. He owns four restaurants in Metro Denver. He said it's virtually impossible to keep all of his employees when a restaurant is shut down by government mandate. It's a constant analysis spreadsheet forecasting with our CFO and our bankers and our accountants trying to to find that balance of using this money, doing it right, doing it the way that the guidelines are written interpreting the guidelines properly and um, hoping that we did everything right to get forgiveness. So Wolken's been able to do takeout at one of his restaurants and has two locations with outdoor patios. uh, So he has capacity for limited in-person dining, but still he's had to cut his staff from 300 before the pandemic to 80. Sarah, what's the timeline to find out if the PPPs are doing what they're supposed to do? Well, there's one twist that could impact that. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin recently said that maybe PP loans should be forgiven, regardless of how the funds were used. Now, this would only apply to the smaller loans, most likely. But if that happens, it could complicate efforts to track how effective the program is, because if companies don't have to quantify the number of jobs that exist today, there won't be numbers to compare before and after. But assuming that most companies do have to report their numbers, we'd probably get that data at the end of the year at the earliest. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland tracking the impact federal payroll protection program loans are having in Colorado to keep people employed during the pandemic. In their own words, we're sharing the stories of healthcare providers navigating the pandemic. Aaron Carter LaRock is a physician's assistant with Dispatch Health. He provides urgent care to the community. I do have the unique opportunity to work two weeks worth of shifts in the emergency department local to where my parents live. One of the incredibly nice things of being able to go back home and stay with my parents is a home cooking. When I come back from a, a shift, my mom oftentimes makes an amazing meal. My father's had quite a number of medical issues come up and has been on chemotherapy for five years now. And To be able to be there as a supportive son, but also as somebody who can listen to the medical conversations with his doctors is definitely extremely valuable. My name is Aaron Carter Lorac. I'm a physician assistant with Dispatch Health. We provide mobile urgent care to the community. We'll arrive to someone's house or a social care facility. We might see someone at work and then do the full assessment, treatment, and plan right there, wherever the patient happens to be. I personally had not seen too many very sick respiratory patients up until this one shift. The first patient I saw was actually called in as a possible urinary tract infection and generalized weakness. Unfortunately, when we walked into that patient's environment, we were just wearing a typical surgical mask and we're not wearing the full protective equipment. 
And so I came in to the main living room with my EMT partner, and we saw the patient sitting there in a recliner. She was breathing almost 40 times a minute. She had a fever of over 102. And it was very clear to me that she was in the throes of either a severe pneumonia or more likely a COVID scenario. And so she was definitely a very, very sick and critically ill patient that we needed to activate 911 to provide the appropriate care in a timely manner for her. The daughter was there and I was able to have that conversation in terms of the options. Does the patient have the desire to seek intervention and treatment? And so I was able to have that conversation in the home environment instead of in a emergency department with lots of noise and light and sounds and stress. Family and patients will make different choices, I think, when they're in different environments. After seeing that patient, the very next patient we saw was in a memory care unit in a assisted care facility, and it was a very similar picture just to have this juxtaposition of two patients, elderly, very, very sick, very poor prognosis overall, and thinking about this might be the new normal of what our society and our medical interaction and care was going to be definitely hit me hard. Moving forward from this pandemic, I hope that people will become a lot more accepting of personal space in terms of, you know, if you're ill and you're actively sick, then you shouldn't go out. You should kind of, you know, do a little mini self-quarantine, even when you just have a typical viral cough and cold, as it could always lead to something more concerning for somebody else. And I think that that's really been highlighted in this pandemic, that the mask wearing is really designed to protect others as much as it is to protect yourself. And I think that's a shift that's becoming much more mainstream in society. And I hope that that continues. Thanks to CPR's Claire Cleveland for putting that story together. You can read this and other profiles about healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic at CPR.org. Okay, parents, we've been hearing a lot about schools reopening, and we want your thoughts. Maybe having your kids back in class will ease the strain on your work and family life. Or maybe, like this teacher we heard from recently, you're worried about safety. I am extremely concerned about returning to school in person as normal. We have to have spacing, social distancing. We have to have mask requirements. It cannot be my 32 to 35 kids in a classroom four times a day because the one that's going to get sick are the families of these kids that they go home to and the staff. The kids may get sick, but apparently it doesn't affect them as, as much. I also am not willing to lose a kid to this. People need to really think this out. That's Maria Volker, who teaches in Douglas County. 
We're going to begin a deeper discussion about these issues later in the week. If you have children enrolled in your school, it's your turn to tell us how you're feeling about sending them back. What are the pros and cons for your family? Call our voicemail line at 303-871-9191, extension 480, and leave us a message with your name, phone number, and what you're thinking. And you may use we may use your comments online and on the air. Again, that's CPR's main number, 303-871-9191, and choose extension 480. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anne Maria Wad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. What does it mean to be a man of color in America? And how is that image of what society thinks a man should be detrimental and inaccurate? A new photo series from the Denver organization Black Actors Guild explores the misconceptions surrounding masculinity and men of color. It's called Are We Still Cool? And here to tell us more about the project is creative director Christina Pitaluga. Hi, Christina. Hello there. Thanks for having me. And Ryan Fu, who is the director of the operations for Black Actors Guild and was a model in the photo series. Hi, Ryan. Hey, happy to be here. Christina, I understand that this project was inspired by your brothers and watching them grow up. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I grew up with two older brothers. I was the only girl and mostly male cousins. We all grew up in Colorado together. And I just have always been very observant. And growing up, I was observing how when we'd be sad or something, it was handled differently. I was more so allowed to kind of have tantrums and cry a lot instead of being told like, hey, you know, like buck up, like you're okay. And just watching that never fully made sense to me. Um, And there was always just the excuse of like, oh, come on, you're a man, like you're a boy, like you're going to be a man. It's okay. Stop crying. And for me, that was always just like, what? Like, you can cry. Let those tears flow. And just watching that never sat right with me. And then as I grew up as into an adult, um, watching men of color go through like the same thing, I was like, nah, I would like to address this. So, yeah. And so one of the ways you're addressing it is you've made these portraits and they're gorgeous. They're filled with soft, soft light and white lace and flowers. Many of the models have gems or flowers on their faces. Ryan, will you describe your portrait for us? Um, Sure. So I think the one you're referring to is me with my child. Um, that's Mingzen uh, Teokali Montoya Fu, Fu Montoya, legally. And uh, he, it's me and him standing there with flowers. And that boy loves flowers. He loves smelling <laughs> flowers. And I was blown away when we were in that room full of flowers. The creative team did such a good job sort of letting us into the space and telling us the energy they wanted us to have. And the boy just loved them. All the young men loved the flowers. And it reminded me how silly it is that grown men can't love flowers in the same way. I've got to ask, what is it like taking these photos with your son and exploring these issues with your son? It felt very natural. And what are some of the misconceptions about about masculinity that you wanted to unpack, Christina? 
Um, definitely the fact that they have to be super hard and the fact that they're not allowed to be soft, that it's like taboo or weird if they're crying and upset and, and binging on ice cream after a breakup. It's like, oh, that's a really feminine way to handle that. Like, no, you can be in touch with your feelings and that's okay. And I just really want to debunk a lot of that that has to do with having to have this hard exterior as a man of color. That's I, I don't think it, that's necessary at all. And it's been built up that way all across the board for men of color, that they have to be this certain way and they can't be sad. Or if they're sad, it's weakness. And for me, that's strength when you're able to show all the different range of emotions. So really trying to debunk that and also getting men of color in art more in a positive way. In this portrait series, you're also talking with the people who are modeling. Mm -hmm. What are some of the questions and did their answers help you shape what you're looking for in a portrait? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There were questions like, when was the last time you danced? When was the last time you cried? When was the last or like the first time you remember crying in public? Um, how did your dad express his love for you when you were growing up? And it was a list of 20 questions. They were all pretty deep like that. So it it definitely set the tone because we had like a home cooked meal and they were I just wanted them to be very comfortable and very open. And I think once we asked those questions, because there were models in the room when we when other models were being interviewed and they kind of like saw and like understood the vibes. And they were like, wow, like she really wants to know how we feel like she really cares. And like I feel safe to say I cried last week because I got in a car accident, you know, and that meant so much because it was the setup made them feel comfortable and that that meant so much to me because that's what it was about and then they were able to kind of embrace that softness which was so beautiful Ryan do you remember what Christina asked you while she was taking your portrait uh what was the difference between men and boys I think was the question and what's your answer um I I think that the difference between a man and a boy is your ability to take care of other people Right. Like a boy is someone that needs to be cared for. You need to feed them and potentially change their diapers and you know you do everything for them. And when I think the transition, I think the purpose of a rite of passage in other cultures that maybe we've forgotten some a little bit is for that boy to take that next step and prove that they can take care of other people, that they're mm-hmm. transitioning into the role of, of caretaker. And this is especially poignant because you're holding your son as you're explaining this. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you think about what Christina is talking about in this idea that men and boys aren't allowed to express their emotions in certain ways. Have you felt that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's any, every man (laughs) has felt that way. I think that men of color are especially oppressed in that sort of fashion because of the way the media portrays us. Mm -hmm. You know, as an Asian man, I can tell you that the way in which the media represents me is a little less uh, heinous than how they represent black and brown men. Mm -hmm. But it's equally as... Uh, emasculating. It's equally as uh, frustrating. It's equally as stereotyping. And I think that every man deals with that. I think that white men deal with that too. Mm -hmm. But I think men of color have a barrier to access that white men don't to deal with their emotions, to go to therapy, to be asked questions like Christina asked us in that room and feel like that was the first time anyone had ever asked us that. And Christina, you're nodding. Your series specifically focuses on men of color. And can you tell me more about the differences that you see the way society views masculinity and white men versus men of color? Absolutely. Um, 
I mean, there's just a lot of stereotypes, as he was talking about, tagged on to men of color. And so I feel like that happens less with, you know, non-POC men. And there's always, like, the thug stereotype or, like, in the most, like, the last article we talk about how there's, like, the nerd stereotype for the Asian man or, like, just the, um, like, angry, mad, oh, I'm, I'm ready to punch the world um, vibes from, from black and brown men. And I just... Um, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's unfair. I think it's yeah, unfair is what you're sure. saying. That like, there are so many black, brown, yellow, native, all different kinds of fo- kinds of men who feel all different kinds of ways mm-hmm. and have all different kinds of expression. But what we see in our movies and on screen and in the media is the same representation over and over again because it serves a very particular narrative. White men don't have that, yeah. right? When I ask you, how do our white men portrayed in the media? You might think a few things like powerful or like, you know, like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett comes to mind or Donald Trump or whatever it is, you know, but you don't, you could also think of a variety of other like comics and men who are allowed to be softer or more fun Mm -hmm. or explore or be honest about their sexuality. That kind of representation, representation doesn't exist for men of color. And with all this pressure from the outside, was it hard getting men to open up as a part of your project? Um, I think with the people that I chose, it was a bit easier because a lot of them were people that I know and love and they knew that I had the best intentions. I wanted them to feel comfortable. So I don't I don't think it, if I would have chose people that I didn't know, I think it might have been a bit harder to kind of crack them open. But because it was like, hey, I love you. Will you be a part of this? I really want to know how you feel and what you think. I think they're like, OK, wow, Christina really loves me and cares about me and is hyping me up and wants to see me feel pretty. And so I I think I chose the person perfect people to be a part of it. Um, And yeah, just there was so much love involved that I don't, it was less difficult than I was expecting. There were a few barriers with like body dysmorphia and things of that nature, but we were able to overcome those just because I just wouldn't stop spewing love. I was just like, hey, no, you're beautiful. Everything is wonderful. You're a Mona Lisa. Everything's great. So I think it just choosing the right people really mattered in this situation. I want to hype her up for that too, because when we came in, she gave us gift bags right away and she had home cooked food for us. And like the whole environment was set up so that when we walked in, we felt tender and nurtured. And I, I struggle to think of any other time I felt that way. Lavender incense burning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh man, that sounds amazing. And there's just so much trust in how you're going to tell these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of diversity among your participants. Uh, participants, you had some folks who were straight, some in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Was there a difference in how comfortable people were opening up? Um, actually, not really. There were even some of the queer men. Those were the ones that honestly were a bit more open about their body dysmorphia. And it wasn't about sexuality going into it at all. It was just about the idea of masculinity. And that goes across all the all boards. It doesn't have to do with sexuality. And that has come up a lot because people automatically, when they see these soft things, they think of sexuality. But it wasn't really about that, although it was important to me to have the straight cis men there because I was like, okay, it might be more difficult. But really, it was it was you know, they all struggled. So it didn't really matter, you know, queer, straight. They all had obstacles they had to overcome um, to open up and and feel okay. And I understand that there's been some pushback since you published this series online. Tell me about that. Yeah. So a lot of the comments, actually, I haven't gotten a chance to see. I just recently saw one that was like, LOL, no hate, but is this some gay stuff? And one of the models responded so beautifully and was just like, no, it's more so about like debunking that exact thing. If you want to know more, like check out the articles because I really break it down. And yeah, um, surprisingly, well, not surprisingly enough, but it was um, 
older black and brown people that were giving this pushback of like, um, what? And just like being really uncomfortable. And for me, when I found that out from Ryan, I, you would expect maybe for me to be like, oh, man, but I felt kind of good because I was like, wow, what I'm talking about is relevant. What I'm talking about and addressing is true. And so the fact that it's making these people uncomfortable, it's going to start more conversation because people are going to see that and be like, wow, there's proof right there that someone is like, oh, this is gay. It's like you're missing the point, though. And so it kind of just proves the point I'm trying to make in the project. Mm-hmm. The photo shoot, it wrapped up before COVID-19 hit Colorado hard and mm-hmm. the protests against police brutality and systemic racism. Racism began. But how do you see other issues intersect with the issues you're exploring? And are we still cool? Yeah, for sure. Um, This question is so interesting to me because I am a person of color. You know, I'm a black woman. And so I wake up every day with the thought, like in the back of my mind, that I could go outside and, and, and get gunned down for no reason. My brothers, my uncles. And this was something that was in the back of my mind because it's always there when I when I did the project because I'm tired of seeing them portrayed in these certain ways and and people looking at them and being scared. And the fact that it just tied in and the release and everything, it was magical almost the way it kind of just came out during all of this. And it's bringing up that that people may in the back of their minds not even realize they're looking at men of color in this way. So I think it was really important that it came out during this time so people can see them softer. I want to thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Christina Pitaluga and Ryan Fu from the Denver Arts Organization, Black Actors Guild. Pitaluga is the creative director behind the photo series, Are We Still Cool? And Fu modeled and produced for the project. Menstruation is an experience about half the people in the world share, but talking about periods can still be awkward. The graphic novel Go With the Flow tells teenage girls stories of friendship and normalizes periods along the way. Authors Karen Schneeman and Lily Williams join me to talk about their book and how the taboo around periods has affected them personally. Lily and Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The color red dominates your illustrations. It's striking and obviously thematic. Lily, tell me about that choice and how it contributes to the narrative of the characters. So our book is obviously about friendship and periods in high school. And some of my favorite graphic novels, like This One Summer by Mariko and Jillian Tamaki and Be Prepared by Vera Brasco were in Limited Palace. And I was really inspired by that. So when it came time to figure out the color scheme, I wanted to go with a limited color palette in red. So really honing in on the focus of this story. So let's back up. This is not actually your first comic about periods. The two of you met in college where you started a webcomic called The Mean Magenta. It's also about women and periods. Karen, what made the two of you decide to start the comic? Yeah, so Lily and I became friends almost instantaneously. Um... We were sitting in class and there was an earthquake because we live in California at the time. And uh, there was a huge projector right over Lily's seat. So I just tapped her on the shoulder. I was like, hey, you might want to (laughs) move. After that point, we started going and getting food together a lot of times after class. And we eventually started talking about periods. And Lily has some really difficult um, cramps and difficulties around her period. And so does one of my best friends. And so we realized, like, a lot of people don't know this stuff. And how, how can we get that messaging out there? So we decided to do the webcomic. 
There are a few well-known coming-of-age novels about young women. I'm sure many listeners have read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, or The Moon Within by Ada Salazar. What do you think is missing from literature that already exists about young women coming of age? I think that our book fills a gap just because with graphic novels, you get to visually see so many things that are funny and taboo and like you actually get to see that in the comic form, which is lovely, but we just need more even casual mention of menstruation in books. You know, you read all these books and all these characters are having periods and yet it's never mentioned. And what do you think is the effect of having a taboo over something that happens to so much of the population? Well, when you have taboo, it ends up making it so people are too ashamed. You internalize that shame the minute your period starts, and then you work your whole life to dismantle it, or you don't, and you carry that with you forever, like a backpack full of embarrassment. Um, And it's an issue that affects not only girls going to school, but incarcerated women, homeless women. Um, It affects so many people who need our help, who need us to be talking about it. And we don't study diseases and issues related to the uterus because we're too ashamed to even talk about periods. I suffer from endometriosis. It took me 14 years to get a diagnosis. It takes on average 7.5 years to get a diagnosis. And that's all because we have this shame around periods and menstruation, so we don't study it. We don't have funding for it on larger governmental levels. So shame around periods, which is, I mean, that's something that'll happen or has happened to roughly half of people. Without spoiling the plot, the book centers around a group of friends. They're all high school girls. They each have a unique period story. Plus, they deal with high school math class, crushes, track team. They write letters, petition, and make some noise about the disparity at their school. What are some other disparities that you see, Lily, about the way that periods are treated in our society? Yeah, so there was a study done in Jennifer Weiss-Wolf's amazing book, Periods Gone Public. She talks about this. There was a study done in New York where they followed women at a prison, and it turned out that they weren't given enough pads for their cycles. And in order to prove that they needed more pads for their cycles, they had to collect their used pads to prove that they needed more, which is so incredibly dehumanizing and shameful and makes you embarrassed to even be bleeding, which is something you can't even control. And in that situation, we're not even factoring for the people who have horrible menstrual cramps or, um, you know, debilitatingly long and heavy periods. And also, you know, for endometriosis, we, the American College of Obstetrics doesn't educate gynecologists on it. So we have a huge issue there where there's a complete lack of understanding in our healthcare providers for diseases like endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, polycystic ovary syndrome. Karen, what are the disparities that come to mind for you? Well, I think going off of what Lily said, I would also add that, you know, historically the medical field has been largely male dominated. And I think there's this shame that you're not supposed to tell men about it. You're not supposed to tell even your closest family members about it in some ways, right? Because that's a woman's issue. That's a woman's problem. And I think that's part of what feeds into the fact that there hasn't been a lot of attention given to menstrual problems or issues around reproductive health for primarily for women. 
Right. And I remember a time when I was supposed to run a 5K and I started my period right before the start of the race and I had to ask my brother to go get tampons for me. And he was really good about it. But I remember how embarrassing even that felt. Um, Karen, do you hope this book will also appeal to boys? We really do. Recently, we were at a book festival and there was this really cute boy that came up to us and he said, I have a question for you. I'm not sure if I should ask it. And we said, go ahead, of course, ask it. And he said, should I read this book too? Because it was for his sister. And we said, absolutely. I think Lily and I both worked really hard to keep the story interesting and the plot interesting and just to work periods in as part of normal life. Um, So we want it to be funny. We want it to be relatable to everyone, hopefully. And then everyone can get a little bit better of an understanding of what it's like to have your period. And the characters in this book, they all embody different aspects of your own experiences with your periods. The character Britt, for example, she struggles with period pain that looks a lot like endometriosis, like you talked about, Lily. That is something that you struggle with. Tell me a little bit about that diagnosis process, because you said it was so hard to get diagnosed. Yeah, so um, Britt... Brit struggles from endometriosis, and it becomes sort of a larger problem throughout the book, and they talk about her getting help at the end of the book, but, you know, not to spoil it, there isn't a huge resolve for her, and that's because it felt disingenuous to me to give her a huge resolve. Right, she when... doesn't get diagnosed by the end. No, and it felt it felt like that was honest to what happens to most women. Um, you know, most women struggle with being dismissed by their doctors, going from doctor to doctor to get a diagnosis, um, struggling to even get information. I started my period when I was 12, and it took 14 years after that for me to get a diagnosis. And we were writing the book, and I got the diagnosis towards the end of writing the book, and we had to actually rework the ending of Britt's character because even while writing her, I didn't know what was going on with her because I didn't know what was going on with myself. And so in a lot of ways, Britt's story is mine. And it's incredibly shameful. It feels like you're fighting a system built to diminish you and make you feel like you're the crazy one, especially when you're a kid and you're like, well, I guess this doctor must be right. You know, everyone else thinks I'm healthy and yet I'm bedridden, you know, three days of the month. And it got to the point where endometriosis eventually creeps outside your period and your whole entire life becomes affected. And by the time I ended up finishing the drawings for the book, I was I had surgery in the middle of the deadline, but right before that I was still working on it and I was like almost bedridden every day at that point. So I had expert excision surgery, but it shouldn't have taken me 14 years of crying at the doctor and going to the ER to get that help. Now that you've had surgery, how are you doing? I'm doing a lot better. I mean, there's no cure, though, so this is going to be a struggle I have to deal with for the rest of my life. Mm. And Karen, you got your period later in your teens, a lot like how Sasha in the book starts her period in her freshman year of high school. How did starting late impact the way you thought about your period and your body? I think for me, it was something that I just kind of ignored. You know, you learn about it briefly in sex ed in about fifth grade, I think. And then I was like, well, that's not something I have to deal with yet. (laughs) So I was kind of feeling like I was the lucky one, right? And then I got to a point where I was like, I think everyone else I know has it. But it was, one again, one of those things when you're like 12, 13, 14, you may not feel comfortable even talking to it, you know, to your friends about it. So I wasn't totally sure who had it, who hadn't had it, but I felt like 
you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so I think it's, again, just one of those things where we want to tell people, you know, there's a wide range of normal, but if there's something that's concerning you, talk about it. You know, that that's the best way to start helping yourself. And when you were an early teen like that, did you feel like you had people you could talk about it with? I definitely could. You know, my parents were very open, um, but I, I definitely felt that, you know, when I had the first conversation with my mom, when I first got my period, I just felt from her reaction that, you know, as kids do, I just felt there was something like weird about talking about it. Um, so I would have loved to have a book where I could just like dive into more information, you know? Yeah. And how do you hope that this book will influence people's conversations about periods or even the way that readers think about their own bodies? I really hope that it just normalizes periods, talking about periods, feeling like, you know, what you're experiencing is something normal. It is something that other people are experiencing as well. I know Lily can talk about, she probably would have loved to know someone else was having a similar struggle, right? Like just to have that support from someone else who's gone through something similar. Um, I, I really just hope that people feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that it's okay to talk about it. And Lily, what about for you? I feel the same. I hope that when people read it, boys and girls, they realize that there's not just one way to menstruate. You can have so many different period experiences and that and that it's not normal to pretend it's not normal. That we have to pretend, we have to like talk about it. We have to actually a- address the subject. We've got to talk about it with each other. It makes the shame, you know, ease and hopefully allows people to get diagnoses that maybe they're putting off or maybe they're concerned about but haven't expressed. But mostly I just really hope that it starts conversation. Lily and Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Author and illustrator Lily Williams lives in Denver. She and Karen Schneeman wrote their graphic novel, Go With the Flow. It came out earlier this year. Finally today, our colleagues at Indy 1023 have partnered with the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver to present B-Side Music Fridays. In the past, the series has taken place on the roof of the museum. This year, performances premiere via Indy 1023's Facebook page. Up next is Denver band The Yoppers. You sit out of your nightmare and promised everyone There was no round-trip ticket, there was no coming home You went to the congregation, convinced no one of your words You walked across the nation, still found no place on the set Freedom of a nine-to-five man, freedom of a nine-to-five man Freedom of a nine-to-five man, come on, come on That's 9 to 5 by the Yoppers. See them perform for MCA Denver's B-Side Music Fridays. This Friday at 7 p.m. on Indy 1023's Facebook page. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.